Hey everybody, it is episode 32 of the Running Rogue Podcast. This is Chris, and I've got Steve joining me as always. Hey Steve. Hello world. We are back at you this week talking about mental training. This is going to be our seventh episode in our mental training series. We're going to be continuing our discussions on mental training tools or things you can put in your your toolkit or your quiver for if we're going back to the word warrior analogy in order to improve your mental approach in workouts and in races. For those that want to go back and listen, you don't necessarily have to to get the benefit of this episode, but you can go back and listen to episodes 6, 11, 13, 18, 20, and 25 that we've done so far in mental training. And this episode 32, again, we'll continue our discussion on mental tools that you can apply in races and in training. We didn't do this on the last episode with Kara because we wanted to keep it tight around that interview, but we're going back to our traditional format today, talking about some current events in the running world. And because it's been a little bit of time since we've recorded, we've got some catching up to do. We're going to start by talking about the Peachtree 10K, which we primed a little bit in earlier episodes. There was a Potential battle between Shalane Flanagan and Jordan Hesse, which did not pan out as Shalane decided after USA's to not take the starting line. Jordan raced, and we'll talk about the results in a second. But before we do that, I want to set the context for people on the Peachtree 10K. It's a 4th of July tradition started in 1970 by the Atlantic Tra- Atlanta Track Club, which Many people may not know, but it's similar to the BAA, the Boston Athletic Association, in terms of track clubs in the U.S. having a strong and influential role in the running in their city. And ATC is one of those bigger clubs that tends to do a lot in Atlanta. And this is their race. The race is the world's largest 10K with a cap of 60,000 60,000. 60, That's six with four zeros. Like a music festival. Participants with over 20 different corrals, starting corrals, all seated by your, your qualifying or, or your time that you submit. And so you're seated based on the time you submit from either a 10K or a half. But 60,000 people, always on 4th of July, always warm, pretty challenging course for those from Austin. I would equate it to the cap 10k perhaps even a little tougher perhaps maybe yeah. tougher than that so it's not an easy course and this year was no exception I, I saw parts of the press conference the day before where they were warning people of the temperatures it was it was going to be 100 degrees that day in Atlanta and it was in the 80s i believe by the time it's the got race a latest start doesn't it like start at 9 or 10 i can't remember exactly what time of day it starts but it doesn't start at like 7 in the morning right. like you would expect in the summer in Atlanta, Georgia. Right. So they had a press conference the day before warning people to kind of put in the safety precautions, hydrate, and so forth. I had one of my runners do it. She said it wasn't that bad if you're an Austinite. <laughs> you know, she's like, compared to our mornings, it was no big deal. But, you know, it's warm for a 10K. So that kind of sets the stage. And this year, the race was the U.S. 10K Road Championships. And so you had a lots, lots of elite you know, road athletes there, including Jordan Hesse, as we mentioned. We'll start on the women's side just to give you a quick recap on results. The podium for the women's race started with Alafine Tuliamuk. She's a Kenyan-born athlete that's now a U.S. citizen. She was our top athlete at World Cross. We've talked about her before. She kind of ran away with it 
in 32-49 on the women's side, beat Sarah Pagano, which is an interesting name to mention. BAA. Also BAA athlete <clears throat> in 33-01, and then Jordan Hesse came in in 33-08. I think it would have been interesting to see a little sharper Jordan Hesse in this race because I think she would have given Olafina a run for her money. But that was your podium. A couple of Texas mentions that we got to call out. Marielle Hall, Steve's former UT athlete, who finished fifth. Well, I think she ended up sixth in the 10K at USA's. Was fifth overall here. And Becky Wade from Rice University, who is also a marathon distance runner, end up, ended up sixth. So some impressive results there. It seemed like you had, you know, maybe some smaller battles in the two through six racers, but Alephine was the class of the field and kind of ran away with it. She likes to go out hard, usually. You see her, she'll have a tendency to surge hard. She has, uses sort of Kenyan tactics, which is unusual in um, U.S. distance running. You don't, not as much surging and things like that, but I'm not really surprised to see her win this. I think what I was really surprised was how well Sarah Pagano ran. Uh, she ran at Syracuse University. Really solid runners getting really good there at BAA. Um, and yeah, and she just ran, I saw a 3K in Europe in 8.58, I believe. Yeah, that's really good. So really impressive. So she's one to watch, you know? It's like, I'm honestly, I'm, I'm not as familiar with her background, but she's kind of come out of nowhere to put herself in position. She so, was a really solid collegiate athlete. You know, she was an All-American many t- a number of times over um, and uh, seems to have gotten much better in the program that she's in now um they're doing some really good things there and that that program is just finally starting to kind of seed all those talented athletes getting better and better and better and you think about what's going on in boston right now in terms of the level of athletics especially on the women's side what's going on there even on the men's side with chris o'hare training with that group too he's running unbelievable this year he's an english-born athlete running for um the baa as well he's running on he's on fire so Really good things coming out of the BAA. And uh, again, I also some really good things coming out of Atlanta Track Club. They've got a new sort of sort of really pushing the post-collegiate program. And I think that they had Carabao Arasa, who was up in the top uh, 10, I believe, at this race. And he's been running really, really well as well. So um, good to see some of these clubs continuing. There's some of the smaller clubs, although BAA and ATC, you couldn't really call them smaller. They're big, but They're smaller big on the elite s- side. Correct. Yep. And, and the, you know, one shout out to Atlanta Track Club. Anybody that's followed war- U.S. cross-country championships, on the Masters side, especially the Masters men, Chris, you know this, they, they are just unstoppable at the U.S. cross championships or club cross-country yep. championships. They'll have four or five guys placing the top 10 running, you know, low 30s in the 10K at over 40 years old on a cross-country course to boot. Um, so great to see Atlanta Track Club continuing to push forward on amazing results and doing great things for U.S. distance running. It's also worth mentioning, since we mentioned the BA, that Jen Rines finished first Masters in this race. She's a former 10K and Marathon Olympian and is, is somebody who, she's had a long, solid career. She's always putting her name up at the top of these lists against these younger 20 to 30 yeah, year she old was like athletes. a 10k and then she went to the marathon then she moved back, back to, to the, the 800 no, back to the 800 she went at the 800 really? or the 1500 for a little while and then um and then has moved now sort of settled outside of the marathoning space space and um is running more of that 5k 10k stuff so 
but impressive results there from Jen. We switch over to the men's side. We had a lot of familiar names at the top from from USA's names that we mentioned in both our preview and recap shows. The American Distance Project U.S. Army Group swept the podium with Leonard Career, who beat his his fellow teammate this time in the 10K, getting the win in 28-16. Shadrach Kiptajir, who edged him in the 10K at USA's, was a second behind them. So they kind of had a not a photo finish because Career kind of edged him at the end in the final kick. And then Sham, Sam Chilanga was only eight seconds back to round out the podium for that. Scott Simmons-led group, really impressive. Chris Derrick, who was at USA's as well in the 5K, was, was right there in fourth. And then good old old man Lagat. We've talked about him before. He's somehow having success at the 10K on the roads. Yeah. You know, he did the Manchester run on Memorial Day, Peachtree here. July 4th and was 5th overall and, of course, first Masters. <laughs> only by a little bit, though. I mean, he was only about 12 seconds ahead of the next Masters guy, which is Abdi Abdurrahman, yep. who has uh, had an incredible resurgence over the last um, last six months or so. He, you know, he, everybody thought he was dead and gone as a, as a, as a high-level competitor. Um, you know, Bernard's not been ever out of it. He's always kind of stayed in it. And, you know, I've got mixed feelings on Bernard in terms of just... <laughs> Overall, he might be worth an entire podcast, just sort of the story of Bernard Lagat, the ups and downs and, and, and sort, of, sort of the challenges. And, and even, um, you know, he's a little bit of a controversial figure, not to the general public who all see him as a um, stand-up guy, but uh, he's got issues with his... With, he he with had his, an EPO positive at one point. Correct. And he switched, and he's now switched his uh, citizenship, which now many others have done, but he was one of the first to do that. Um, after he competed at an international level for Kenya, and that's one of the big differences here. But you know, we'll leave that one alone. We'll just leave it, let it leave it where it lies for another podcast. Yes, but uh, one name I was really happy to see in this list was Ryan Vale. To see that he's looks like he might be on the mend and getting back to running well. He's one of our best American marathoners. Certainly one of our most unsung blue collar marathoners. Would love to see him get back into the mix and competing at a high level. Ryan Bell finished ninth. I think you also have to mention Parker Stenson. Texas boy, yeah. Texas boy, Central Cedar Texas, single pro- Cedar Park High School runner. He's had success at the 10K distance, which is unusual for a high schooler since he was in high school. Mm-hmm. And rounds out the, t- the top 10, finishing 10th year. What's your take on Parker? Because he's somebody who is a precocious performer in high school, went to the univers- University of Oregon, I think we all expected a little bit more from him collegiately. He's now graduated and is running on the road scene, but hasn't really, at least at least based on predictions from when he was in high school, lived up to his potential. What's your view of his career? I think if you took and put Parker Stinson five years before, if he ran at the NCAA level five years before, he, he would, you would, everybody would be knowing his name. He came out in a time frame where the 5K and 10K talent levels were so high. I thought he ran nearly as good as he could possibly run. He would change racing styles. Sometimes he'd come from the back to the front. Sometimes he would be in the front and, and, and push off the front. You know, Parker, he's a diminutive guy. He's 5'8", five, 5'9", five, probably. Um, tiny comparison to many of the other guys that he was racing against. And... uh he had to push really hard all the time to stay up and where he was at. I mean, he ran some stellar times, 
low 1520s, I believe. I mean, low, four, low 1320s, um, and certainly low 28, if not low 28 in terms of his 10K. So he's really a pretty solid runner. He just ran up against some of the best in the, that have ever... Ha- I mean, the last five years, the NCAA champions, the NCAA level has been so much better. Um, I know Parker trained for a little while, moved to Boulder, and I think now he's gone, and he's now training in Minnesota, if I'm not incorrect. I think he might have shifted training groups. I'm not sure exactly who he's training with, but I think Parker's one of those guys that if he just stays with it, stays consistent, when he moves from the hat to the half in the marathon, he may be a name we pay attention to later on. I don't think Parker has had a... a, I'm not sure how he would feel about it, but I think he's done a lot with what the gifts he has. Um, So few people ran the 10K in the high school level. So it looked in many ways that he was significantly better runner at the high school level than his race results at the, con- at the cross-country level would have indicated. Um, so uh, I think he did the best he could do with what he had, and I think that he's continuing to make a, a, a shot at it and, may- and continuing to stay at this level is awesome stuff. So I don't think it was a disappointment. I just think he was running up against the buzzsaw of the level that is actually at the NCAA now. Good to see him in the top 10 competing with some of those big names that we just mentioned because that was a pretty stacked men's field there with four guys that had just come off of big USA performances. So that's Peachtree. I think that's one of those races for the everyday runner. If you get a chance to go to Atlanta to to run Peachtree with the masses, you know, you have to enter the lottery and get in that way because more than 60,000 people want to get in. So that's one that you have to plan for, but that's an experience worth having, especially if you have any connection to Georgia or the Atlanta area. All right, so let's switch gears. We need, there's a couple of recent announcements as relates to the Olympic trials. It's weird to already be thinking about 2020 Olympics, but it's time to start thinking about it. A couple of recent announcements on the Olympic trials. One, and we'll start with this. They've determined the venue for the Olympic track and field trials, at least. This will be different than the venue, most likely, for the Olympic marathon trials, but they've determined the track and field trials. It was a battle between Eugene, Sacramento, and Walnut, California, Mount San Antonio College in Walnut, California, which is outside of L.A. or basically a suburb of L.A. Those three were vying for the track trials for 2020. And it has been awarded to Mount Sac, Mount San Antonio College in Walnut, California, near L.A. Now, a lot of people have mixed feelings about that because Eugene is the heartbeat of track and field and is a place where the trials have been quite frequently and is a place that's always going to fill the stands. It's always going to be a palpable experience at Hayward Field. But on the flip side of that, There are many that call for variety, that we need to expand our venues so that we get more people who can connect with the sport and do it in a market where it's easier to get access. Eugene can be a little bit difficult to get to and so forth. So what's your reaction on the Mount SAC announcement? I think it's pretty cool um, that I think there's a lot of I think it's cool in the fact that they chose a site, non-traditional site. Mount Mount SAC has been able to handle a huge number of people in terms of the number of participants in a race. I don't think there's a track meet bigger. Maybe, te- maybe Penn Relays is bigger, Texas it's, Relays. I think they have capacity for 21,000. I mean, it is, it is a huge event if you've ever gone to that meet. And 
Um, they know how to run a meet really, really well. They can turn it over really fast. They know how to adjust to weather issues and weather situations. The challenge for Mount Sac is that it's in the middle of nowhere. I mean, it is, you know, you say Eugene's in the middle of nowhere. It's in the middle of nowhere in terms of getting to Eugene. You have to fly into Portland, whereas for LA, you just fly into LA. Or in this case, a lot of people will fly into some of the smaller airports that are around the area. But there is nothing around that. There are no, there's very few hotels, a little bit hard to get to from a venue. I've gone many, many years as a coach and I went as an athlete. Um, there's certainly no, one of the nice things about Eugene is for all the fans right afterwards, you spill right out, you can hit a bar or you can hit a coffee shop or you can go somewhere else to talk about what's going on. You're not, you're going to have to get in a car and drive somewhere in um, going into Walnut, California. There's not much going on out there. So I think that they will have, mixed views on it from the 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 racers experience from the spectator experience it'll be interesting to see how that plays out whether i think it's you know there's always going to be the 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 you know dr doolittle's push me pull me um fight between the sprinters and the distance runners in terms of what's the most optimal location for a race when it's 65 degrees and raining in late June, early July, which has happened. You and I have been to the Olympic trials now a number of times where we've been poured on for right. windows and yep. ch very chilled. Distance runners love that. It's an extremely challenging space for a sprinter to get ready to race and very, frankly, pretty dangerous for many of the sprinters. Um, having coached at UT, with, which was a sprint-based school on the women's side for many years, I know exactly and very conscious of the challenges that sprinters have in dealing with cold weather situations. So I think, but, but I'll tell you, Sacramento, I'm just glad they're not going to Sacramento because that was a <laughs> shit show this year. So hot, so hot, so hot unbearably hot. But for the distance runners, it will cool down in Walnut in the evening. Unlike Sacramento, which is a little further north and in the inland, I think that they'll get cooler. They're right in the shadow of Pasadena and the mountains there, the mountains that are right up above them. It could end up being a decent location. And Mount Sac, frankly, is sometimes really, it can be rather warm when they run in April, um, when the race happens. So I think it'll be an interesting play. I'm, I'm, right now, I'm conservatively saying good choice because I'm interested in seeing how it all plays out. The real question is, who, who will, the, will it be the perfect medium for the sprinters and the distance runners? Because I think that's what USATF is trying to do, is trying to bridge the gap to try to find a location that's optimal for both groups. Um, and this may be as close as they're going to get. Well, I think they're also seeing LA as a big media market and somehow thinking that will draw attention to what's happening, which I think you can debate. Nobody My, follows it anyway. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, you also have a, a an LA fan that's typically fairly apathetic, so... They can't even have a so, football team. I yeah. mean, they're going to have... So <laughs> that, to me, is the issue. I mean, as I look at it, and, and we've been, at least I've been to the 2012 trials, the 2016 trials in Eugene. Mm-hmm. You go there, and it is such a cool experience. There's nothing like a track meet at Hayward Field. And it's not just the in-stadium experience and the understanding of the fan base that goes to that meet. It's also the city, and it's a running town. And you know that. you got Priest Trail, and you've got all the athletes staying close by, and you're close by, so you're seeing elites that are doing their shakeout runs and their easy day runs between events and things like that. So you're seeing elites if you go out on the trail. It's just such a cool experience because everybody's together. You're seeing them at the bars after their events. So 
it's just such a cool experience for a fan to be that close. It will not be that experience. And it won't be like that. Nowhere close. But, you know, ultimately, it's, it's, a, really cha- it's a big challenge for USATF in trying to determine what's optimal for the athlete because the, the sprinters were very unhappy with Eugene. Yep. And, and, and as I've stated, the reasons I stated before, I think that they had good cause for that. And that's why I think we need, should change it optimally. What I would like to see is Eugene alternate with some other location every other year. So you got Eugene, I mean, every other Olympic trials. You've got a Eugene at least every eight year, you know, once every eight years. Um, but you've got a variety of other sites. Aren't there locations on the East Coast? I mean, how much Sacramento was so hot? Could, could Penn Relays handle it? Could they do it in Philadelphia? I mean, I know that's a really, really warm place as well. I'm sure there's locations in, in Boston that could handle that. Certainly, we would want, not want anybody to come to Austin, Texas, <laughs> even though we've got a great facility for right, it. Right. I, would, I would hate for that to have to happen, for our <laughs> folks to be here during that time of year. Um, but, you know, we, we, I just wish we had a more uh, conducive and thriving options, lots of more options than the options we currently right. have. You know? I will say, though, for those listening, to me, this is a meet to circle on your calendar. It's three years from now. You can plan you got to go. It's such go. a cool experience to watch it in person. Mount Sac or Eugene or Sacramento or wherever. It's going to be a cool experience. I'm planning to be there. You know, we always like to go. Hopefully yeah. we'll take the podcast with us yes. to record there this, this next time. But it's such a cool experience. So if you can figure out a way to make it happen three years from now, go do it. It'll be well worth your time and travel. So that's one Olympic trials announcement. The other... Olympic trials announcement related to the marathon is that they solidified the standards for the Olympic trials qualifiers, which the window for that opens in September of this year, at least for the marathon related standards, but they also have half marathon related standards that will open in September of next year. They more or less kept the marathon standards the same. So women have to run 237 for the A standard or 245 for the B standard. Men have to run 213 for the A or 219 for the B. Now, that's consistent at least where the standards finished last time. So I don't think there's much to really debate or talk about there. The big question is the half marathon standards. They dropped both of those by a minute. So now the men have to run sub 104. The women have to run sub 113. And they get a little less time, I think. I'm not sure if they had that staggered window last time. I think it was just one window. So they've shortened the window with which you can qualify in a half. And they've decreased the time or made it more challenging for those half marathoners to get in. What's your perspective on these tweaks to the standards? Well, first of all, I've never been a proponent of allowing a half marathon to be an indicator of a person's ability to run a, uh, a marathon. So many athletes, like if you can run under 29 minutes or at 29 minutes for a 10K, you can run under 104, I mean, one, under 105 for the half marathon pretty much in your sleep. You should be doing tempo runs that indicate at least distance to get you into that place. I've never been a fan of that. I always thought it was, I didn't really understand exactly why they did it other than maybe guaranteeing participation and be ensuring some level of participation. Um, but I'm, number one, I wish they would get rid of the half standard, but if they're not going to get rid of it, I'm very thankful that they at least made it a time that's actually commiserate with what the time is for a marathon. Um, now, those, if you plug those numbers into a calculator, they're not going to come out as equivalencies um, if you play with the calculator game like we do here at Rogue. But what you'll find is that the skill set that, 
that a fast 10K runner has is really conducive to running a fast half marathon. But if you can run a half fast half marathon, it is not indicative of your ability to run a fast marathon or right. even to cover the marathon distance at all. Right. And so I am extremely happy that that half marathon time um, has lowered. I would prefer to see it jettisoned altogether. I can see arguments why people might want to keep it there. Someone will say, yeah, but you've had athletes yourself qualify for the Olympic trials and run the marathon. And I will tell you, the ones that did, did not run well at the trials. So they were not prepared for the race distance because, and they, they were thought because they'd qualified. Here's a double, there's a double thing too, is that not only did they think that they were ready, they didn't even have the respect for what the race requires to even be able to handle the drama, the excitement, the environment, and in LA this year, the heat. It was just an ultimate, you know, Ali Mendez, who was one of my athletes who qualified with a halftime, she thought she was ready. She really thought she was ready. I was not entirely confident she was. I still think she had did a decent day for what she got done the best she could do that day. Uh, four years before that, Scott McPherson qualified for the half to, with the halftime, and he had an absolutely horrific day. So I just don't think people should be standing on the starting line of a marathon if they haven't run the marathon distance. Um, I do think there's still, you know, they've got a hidden time in there as well. At least they did the last time. I didn't notice it this time, but in the past, if you ran a really low, really fast 10K, you could also get in to the half, into the, into the marathon. I don't know if that's still there or if they're going to play with that, but that time was always commiserate. It was like, it was like 2805 or something like that. So it was like so fast that you, you, you know, if you wanted to roll up to a marathon, there was no difference between, I mean, 2805 guys going to have a better chance to run a great marathon than a 105 guy. There's no doubt about that. So I tend to agree with you. I was kind of hoping they'd get rid of the standard, but I do appreciate the changes chopping a minute and reducing that window, I think, are good changes. Because the other argument people will make is that Galen Rupp qualified with a halftime, ran his debut marathon, won the event last year. They would have adjusted. So They would have adjusted their plan. He would have gone out and run a half. He would have gone out and run a marathon in the time that he needed to with relative ease. Right. And he would have done it as a tempo run. And they would have made the, they would have made the adjustment. So the problem is that you got a bunch of slap dicks in the back back there who think that they're actually <laughs> Olympic trials qualifiers who really shouldn't be out there in the first place. I'm a little angry about it because I would have been an Olympic trials qualifier easy by the standards, the last standard and the new standard. So my view is screw that, man. That's not, where's the continuity from the late, you know, from the sixties, the seventies, the eighties, the aughts. It's like, but I do see the value now that they've made this event and, and people are watching and people are paying attention. So Getting more people there, I see, but I still think it's sort of my argument against Alisa Montano as we had a couple of, week, a couple of podcasts ago. If you're going to be there, you should be in it to win it. You should have a chance to make a team even and, and not just be there to wave, you know, wave at the crowds and kiss babies. Yes, our athletes, I've had many athletes that have qualified to do and done those things, but they at least met the standard that was necessary and not some bullshit standard that was so low and such low-hanging fruit that many, many American distance runners on the men's and women's side could easily get that time. And it's not indicative of their ability. It's not really the indicative of excellence that I think the Olympic trials should be. I agree with all of that. Plus, Galen Rupp is an athlete category all of his own. Yeah. So, or, And as well as, well as Jordan has say, when you, and, 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 and an argument, here we go. I mean, at some point in time, no matter what we feel about Alberto Zalazar, at the end of the day, he gets his athletes ready, and they know what they're getting ready to get into, and they're ready to perform at that level. They very rarely flame out and don't perform where and when they need to. So, uh, yeah, Galen, it, it, the half argument with him was, it was is not necessarily the best argument, but I, I, 
I know what you were doing, devil. Yeah, yeah. Being the advocate. <laughs> right. <laughs> playing devil's advocate. So that's the controversy or at least the discussion to have around those standards. Now, it will be interesting to see what venue they decide and choose if they try to go back to L.A. or God, I hope open not. it up to other options we will see i'm sure they'll do it be... at boston or do it do it as a part of another ongoing event i mean i'm not saying boston is the place but houston was so epic and such a great location and houston stepped up to the game and they, it's yeah, going on it. at the same time that another event is which they did at la but they didn't even use the same course there was no continuity it just doesn't make sense and it was so hot for those athletes nobody it, tv nobody's watching t put it on a saturday Put it early in the morning before golf starts, and you're going to be just fine. Yeah, well, and the hardcore fans are going to watch it no matter when you show it. So that's that. We'll see where the venue is. But that window opens in September. We've got some of our own runners who will be chasing it in December yes, at CIM. Yes, we do. So the watch is on. Now, before we dive in, we've got a couple more quick things. One to one. Give a shout-out to Scott McPherson, who was a guest on one of our prior podcasts. He posted on Facebook. I guess it was late last week or early this week that he has decided to retire from competitive distance running. And for those that know Scotty, you know that the sport, at least at the competitive level, has lost an amazing competitor and an inspiration. I wanted to read his post for those that didn't see it because I think it's particularly poignant and shines a little bit of light on what athletes that are at that point in their career are thinking about. But he said this, I would like to let all of my friends know that I've decided to retire from professional racing. It is something that has been on my mind for a while now, and halfway through a workout on Wednesday it became so clear to me, I actually felt relieved when I left the track. I didn't get to accomplish what I had hoped as a runner, but I can truly look back at my career with a smile. I've had so many wonderful experiences and met so many amazing people. I've traveled the world and raced Olympic champions and world record holders. However, at this point, training at that level required to be a professional marathoner is not in the cards. I've lost my passion for the process. Marathoning, marathoning is hard enough, and it is infinitely harder when you don't enjoy the grind. I can leave with my head held high. I want to thank all of my friends for their support and encouragement. I would like to thank my colleagues for the memories and for always putting their guts on the line. I would like to thank all of you who raced clean. I did, and though I could have run faster with performance enhancers, I'm more content and satisfied that I did it naturally. Mostly, I would like to thank my family and coaches for guiding me in this journey. And, of course, without my wife, Casey Joe, I would not have been able to chase my dream for so long. I wouldn't be who I am today without her or without running. My heart is filled with gratitude when I think of all the people and experiences I've had the past seven years. Thank you. It's been a thin slice of heaven. I uh, honestly got a little bit emotional reading that when I saw it because Scotty's a good friend of ours, has trained under you, Steve, and, and was a big part of Rogue for a long time when he was here before he, had, he moved away to be with his wife's career. And there's a lot of Rogues I know that have drawn inspiration from his coaching, from just watching him as an athlete. I remember in 20... My, my favorite Scotty story was in 2012 when... He was racing in Houston for the marathon trials, showed up with his half qualifier and got handed his ass on that course, finished, you know, went out too hard, finished horribly, but finished. 
228, 229, something like yeah, that. And Allison was there that day. Maxis, she had an amazing day, finished top 50 and, and finished really strongly. And so we had a post party with rogues. We had a bunch of rogues there that had driven from Austin. We all had shirts on, Mac attack shirts for <laughs> Scotty Mac and Allison Maxis. And so we've had a post party for Allison. And I wouldn't have blamed Scotty if he had not showed up after D, not DNFing, but after finishing the way he did that day. But he showed up and he interacted with everybody. He, a- he answered questions. He told people how it went. And that to me was one of the more inspiring things he did is just, look, I didn't have a good race, but I'm still going to show up and be a part of this experience and be a part of this community. And so my hat goes off to Scotty. He knows how I feel about him. I sent him texts earlier this week, but sport loses a good one in him. You know, Scott is a class act from top to bottom, class act. He's got an incredibly amazing sense of humor. Uh, his, well, his training group uh, here in Austin, he named it Sexual Chocolate. Um, and believe me, he, he went through and still goes through each and one of his days looking for how he can make his day and everyone else's day better. And you feel it from him no matter where he is. He doesn't mail it in. He shows up, he gives his best effort, and he, as you said, the distance running world has lost, um, at least at the competitive level, um, a really important cog. And I guarantee you the guys that he raced against on a consistent basis will be missing him a lot out on the roads and out on the courses because they also appreciated the same things that we at Rogue appreciated of Scotty. Um, He sent me a text the day before he announced and let Ruth and I know that that was the case. And um, my statement to him was, it's time to get fat and happy. <laughs> so we'll see. We'll see what he does. I do have a tendency to think, though, should Scott jump in a marathon or a half marathon at some point in time, I wouldn't be too surprised if he doesn't pop a good one just having fun with it. Because once you take that pressure off, I don't think our list, the listening public really understands the level of stress and the life adjustment that's required to compete at the level that Scott was competing at and the the level that he wanted to compete at. You know, Scott, if he had decided to just be a 215 marathoner, could have taken on a full-time job and continued to work at a high, work at a high level and gone after a career and still run 215. But Scott wasn't content with that. He really wanted to run the 208, the 207, the 206. And though he didn't get close to those times, we both knew at a number of times in his career that he was at the fitness level to run at least 212, which then would have lofted him into the position and the place that he needed to be because that's just a distinguishing time that those times that he was capable of doing, he didn't get to. So that's sad, but I also know that, as he said, it's a thin slice of heaven and the, the, the running world is, should be deeply grateful for the time that they had. And I can guarantee you every rogue that ever bumped into Scott McPherson is deeply grateful and thankful for the time they got to spend with him. But that difficulty level, running at that high level, it, you had to, he had to put his life on hold. He had to choose to get in the 100, 120 miles a week. He had to make choices that, were, that are not long-term sustainable for not only his own career, but his long-term relationship with his wife and, and their goals for their, their lives. You know, his wife is a coach at the NCAA level in gymnastics and probably going to be one of the great NCAA coaches in gymnastics. She's a phenomenal coach. And so it's like they're going to more travel, more flexibility to say nothing about their desire to eventually start a family, which will put even more pressure on them. So, you know, I know that was a hard decision for Scott. 
But one thing I am also really certain of is he will find an appropriate job and an appropriate role that that takes advantage of the skill sets that he brings, and he'll be highly successful in damn near anything he chooses to do. Yeah. So hats off from us here at Rogue. Thanks for the memories, Scotty. I always like to tell people he's one of the, the few athletes I think that can say he beat both Ryan Hall and Meb in, in a couple different races, beating Ryan at Boston one year by one spot, and he beat Meb in January at the New York City yeah. half. So mm-hmm. a solid career, and even though he didn't have the results he wanted, perhaps he has inspired hundreds of others, and that's, that's perhaps more important. So again, hats off to you, Scotty. The other thing we have to mention, also a former Rogue AC athlete, Lenny Waite. She's been chasing the world championship standards for the steeple. Lenny was our one athlete to make it to Rio in the Olympics last year for the steeple. Unfortunately, she had a torn planter going into that race, and it didn't go the way she wanted, but has come back and is healthy again and has been running well in Europe. She's been chasing the standard to go back to Worlds in London this year. She just qualified for that with a 330. I keep saying 337 with a 937 1500 <laughs> with a 937 <laughs> steeple in Sweden to get her world standard. We don't know yet exactly what that means about making the world team because the British have some so funky, funky w- rules and and bureaucracy to actually name that team, but that should put her in good position to go to London. So two major championships in two years is pretty awesome for Lenny. Yeah, and she should have gone to the world championships in Beijing in the year the That's year right. the year before in two thousand fifteen. Fifteen, um, she earned that right. She should have been on that starting line, and the and the selection committee for um, British athletics chose to keep her off of that, which was a mistake because it just put more fuel in her fire to get ready to go to the Olympics, which she did. So. You know, Lenny has had a very tough year this year. I know she just moved from Austin back to Houston, where she went to college. Um, she's gone. I was coaching her last year. She, in close, close collaboration with her coach, uh, high school, her college coach, Jim Bevan at, at Rice University, we worked um, together to help let, get Lenny to the Olympic Games. And I know that she's just had a real struggle with getting transition, finding work, doing all the things that she needed to do. Happy, and it looked this earlier this year like she was going to have a not very good year at all. And then her UK championships race, her British championships race, was 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 really poor, a poor race for her. I don't know exactly whether she fell or what happened for her there, but she has now had a couple of races and bounced back in typical Lenny Waite fashion. This is the way she likes to do it, which is he's almost like Leo Manzano. Let's throw, let's have a really shitty race and then let's have an amazing race. I mean, I think she ran somewhere at the UK championship, somewhere in the vicinity of like 10, 15 or 10, 17. And then she right. runs nine thirty-seven. I mean, talking about 40 <laughs> second fluctuation in time. Um, not super surprising as her former coach, but also makes you hang by your fingernails trying to wonder how, what kind of a race she'll have. I know she's, grateful and thankful that she's done the things that she needs to do to put herself on the starting line um, at the at the world championships but we'll see whether or not she'll get that opportunity uh, everyone here in Austin we know we're all rooting for her hopefully absolutely. she'll get that chance absolutely so go Lenny all right so with that probably too long intro catching up on current events let's dive into our episode here on mental training again This is our seventh now on mental training. You should also check out episodes 6, 11, 13, 18, 20, and 25. Today we're going back to talk about weapons. 
episodes 18 and 20, we kind of started to dive into some tools and weapons people can use as mental training warriors to get the most out of races and workouts. And so now we're kind of going back to that after talking about personal power in episode 25. So we've got four of these that we're going to try to get to, but pending time, we'll see. We'll see how, <laughs> you know, we, we'll see where we can get There's to. There's more sometimes, episodes. Yeah, sometimes we, we go a little bit along. So up to four, but maybe fewer. And we're going to just go through some of these skills and, and ways you can start to work on additional skills in this mental training component. First, we want to start with a word that I think gets in the way of so many people on a starting line. I can't tell you how many athletes that I coach where I, I can see the fear in their eyes going into the race. And I think for different athletes, there's different fears that they might have. So I think perhaps we should start by talking about that. But the first thing we're going to cover here is facing down fears. And how do you set fear aside in order to get the most out of you? So before we just kind of talk about practically working through those fears, let's talk about some of the examples of fears. I know for me, a lot of people I coach have a fear of failure. You know, they think if they don't get what they expected or what people expect of them, then somehow people are going to think less of them. So they sort of fear failure. But what are some other examples that you've seen as a coach? I think, you know, I think fear of failure is the first one that everybody thinks of, but I still think the biggest one, the the biggest sort of obstacle in people's way is fear of success because fear of failure, I see at the higher levels, elite levels and at young, in, in young people more than I see that in adults, in my opinion, um, because they've got a personality or a self wrapped around the idea of being a runner. And so if they're going to fail, that's gonna, that means that they as a person are failing, whereas fear of success is more along the lines, oh my goodness, now I'm going to have to actually live up to the thing I said I wanted, which is what I find much more frequently in, my, in the athletes that I coach on a consistent basis, is that they're more afraid of the work that they get to that point than the work they'll have to do. Now, of course, that's a very subconscious fear. Once you talk to someone, and, and fear of success is a little bit easier to diffuse because you can just talk through the irrationality of it, how irrational that fear is. Um, but fear of success to me is frequently a, a, a bigger issue for the adult population, whereas fear of, fear of failure is a bigger one, at least when I coached at the collegiate level, fear of failure was a big one because so many people had wrapped some of the athletes I worked with, they had wrapped their whole personality and who they were as a human being around it, that if they did not succeed, they, they as a human being were a failure. It was much more difficult. Some other things I've seen in terms of fear is um, a fear of pain. Um, and this is one that is, uh, it's, it's pro- really problematic because it's, it's the crucible with which you must test yourself. It's the fire you have to go through regardless of getting whatever you want. It's going to hurt. And as I've said many times, the marathon always wins. So you're going to get your ass kicked. And so knowing that in advance, that fear of, of the pain and the suffering they're going to have to go through is really problematic. And once an athlete is in a scenario where they have that fear of pain, really hard to defuse that bomb. It's gonna, it goes off so often. Um, and some, some of the methods that you have to use as a coach to try to defuse that bomb can be pretty aggressive, at least the most modes I use, 
because it's a it's a place where you have to really get somebody's attention. You got to slap them in the face. You got to de-pants them. You got to do something to get them vulnerable enough to be willing to go through that pain. So um, what other ones do you, can you think of, Chris? Well, the biggest thing for me is, especially, I think some of these things that we're talking about, fear of failure, fear of success, fear of pain. The interesting thing to me as a coach as I reflect on what you're describing now is that I see them manifest in different ways. So there's sort of the fear itself, but oftentimes the words or the actions or the emotions that you see an athlete relate don't necessarily point you directly to that fear. So part of this as a coach or as an athlete, as you look internally, is trying to understand what exactly is the fear that I have and how are the words I'm saying or the emotions I'm feeling related to that. I'll give you an example. I was meeting with someone yesterday, a one athlete one-on-one, and this was my first time meeting with, with this individual one-on-one. And so I was trying to understand more about what makes her tick. And she made a statement to the effect of, I'm not worried about time. I just want to enjoy the experience. On the surface, you think, okay, that's fine. Maybe this is someone who, you know, is less concerned about beating certain times and is more concerned about just having a good experience, having fun, maybe enjoying the group around her. And so if you had taken that comment on the surface, which I'm unlikely to do as a coach, but (laughs) she was perhaps hoping I would do, (laughs) then you might say, oh, that's cool. That's fine. If that's how you're motivated in this running game, which by the way, it's a fine reason to do this sport but i got this sense that it wasn't just the surface thing that there was more to it so i asked the next question like (laughs) why she walked into a buzzsaw why is it that you're not worried about time and as we dug into it i basically uncovered that she was she had a fear of failure Mm -hmm. that she was worried that if she put a marker out there because she had in the past she said i want to run x in the past and she failed miserably and as a result that led to i don't want to put myself in that situation again maybe there's a combination of fear of failure and fear of success you know i'll have to learn and dig into this more because i think you're right sometimes it's what if i succeed then i have to go for another milestone that and it might was already be hard even scarier right it was even hard it was hard just to get to where i am how can i do more yeah yes. exactly so so to me it's the first step in all of this is Figuring out, as you approach these races, what are your true fears based on what you're saying? And as a coach, we have to be willing to dig deeper like I just did with her. But also as an individual, we have to be willing to look internally and say, okay, what do I really want? And it obviously connects back to the purpose discussions we've had. But this one's perhaps a little bit more nuanced because I think all of us sometimes lie to ourselves about fear. I don't think we sometimes lie to ourselves. I think it's a human condition that yeah. we, all, we all want to put ourselves in. Our, look at Facebook. We all want to put ourselves in the best light. Look at Facebook and how people use Facebook. They're using Facebook to consistently put themselves in the best light. Well, guess what? We all sit down and take a shit in the morning or in the afternoon or the evening. We're all full of shit. At some way, shape, or form, we're completely full of shit. So why, when, when you break it down that way, you know what I mean? And that's a really really in-your-face way of saying, 
you're real, you're human, you're fallible, you're, you're going you're gonna to bleed if I cut you. And that's okay, because that's part of the human condition. You're not, some kind of, um, you're not some kind of perfect runner or some kind of perfect, condi- perfect ideal of a human. And, you know, the social media is really, that is one of the big challenges of the way social media is utilized these days, is, is literally show your very best foot forward all the time. And yet, we're, to be human means to be, to be b- both left-footed and right-footed, to have the yin and the yang, to have the dark and the light. So, um, you know, you mentioned really quickly, I, I think there are two main antidotes to fear, Chris. One is purpose, as we've talked about many times, and you, know, you can go back and listen to our other podcasts of how important having a statement of purpose is. And the other is courage. Um, and courage is a really important concept for people to understand. And I think it's unfortunately overused as a word without understanding its real, its real context. It means courage is just having the willingness to go into the battle that is life with your head held up, your chest out, and facing into it. Not backing in, you know, coming in with your whole body language down and saying moving forward and straight into whatever life is going to bring you with, a, with a, what is it? Clear eyes, clear hearts. I can't remember what it was. Was that uh, the TV show, the, uh, the football TV show, Friday Night Lights? Clear eyes, clear heart, whatever. That's courage to me. It's, it's going in saying, I am the human I am. I am the person I am. I'm going to do my very best. I'm going to go after this. That kind of courage is an antidote to this fear because if you're standing there with purpose and you're standing there with courage, you're going to be able to cut through the dross of what isn't really real about this stuff. But that's a lot of stuff to ask. You know, when we talk about these mental training concepts, we've said this every time. We understand this is some heavy shit and it's not super easy to do. But, if, if, but we're talking about it in pretty down-to-earth, really easy-to-understand concepts. So hopefully you can roll with this a little bit. But I think one of the things that's sort of the opposite of courage is this desire to have a sense of security. And to know what's going to happen and to be sure of what's going to happen. And that's what security is, is to know that I'm in 310 shape. So therefore, I'll run a 310. Well, no, you still got to put one foot in front of the other and actually do it no matter what kind of shape you're in. And all kinds of scenarios can conspire to not allow you to reach that goal. But you, if you're going to stay in a place of security, and that's the, you know, the athlete that you just talked about, Chris, basically what she wants to do is stay really secure. She doesn't want to take risks. She doesn't want to put herself in harm's way. And, you know, at the end of the day, you knew where her secret heart was saying, but she's also a rogue. So in our view, we're going to go after that no matter what anyway, right? Because we expect there to be some depth and some more reason to it because we know every rogue is a human being. Well, right. And I had observed her in workouts as somebody who was pretty rigorous about what we were doing. And as somebody (laughs) I knew cared a lot. And was being really consistent and wanted to make sure she was doing everything the way I described. You don't typically find people like that that are like, oh, you know, lays affair about their Correct. times. So, yes. so I had some clues, but you said you sort of have to value courage over security as a tactical recommendation here. I, there's a famous Thoreau quote, which I've shared before with my athletes, which is he says, We must walk consciously only partway toward our goal and then leap in the dark to our success. And so that's kind of what you're talking about. Is Absolutely. That you're not going to know. And at some point, there's a leap. And it's going to be into an unknown. And you know what, folks? You're gonna, it's unknown when you get in your car, turn the ignition over, 
back it out and get onto a highway to go wherever you're going, there's a whole bunch of unknowns out there. That's how most people die. So, you know, it, it, to this idea that security is, it's not, it's not a human right. It's not a human right. Security is not. It, 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 we have always been forced to push and to fight and to go after everything we have. Sport is our current modern warfare, our way of doing that. And so game on. Walk in to battle with courage. Know your purpose. Walk in with courage and, and fight what comes. You may not win every time, but you'll always walk away knowing that you did your best. So how sounds can, like a freaking Hallmark card. That sounds so cheesy. <laughs> so how can we work on this? One one of the things I like to do for athletes that might be struggling with uncertainty or that might be clinging on to security too much, perhaps, is force them to practice more. So race more. Go do races without maybe really rigorous expectations, but just say go run hard. Go get the most you can out of this race because practice putting yourself into these situations where you're uncertain of the potential outcome and maybe where you don't have some of the pressure of a big A race kind of helps you become a little bit numb to it. What are some other things you would recommend for people to be able to put courage before security? I mean, so look at fear more as a call to action. So if you can't rationalize where your fear is, just take that gut feel or that, you know, it happens. Fear is such an insidious thing. It, it, it first infects your head in a weird way that makes you start to question the things that are going on. And then you end up feeling in your, at the end of the day, you end up feeling in your guts and then you end up feeling in your arms and you get weak. I remember getting on starting in the preparation for races. I would start talking chatter bullshit to myself that may make me more nervous than my stomach would get kind of sick and I'd be super nervous in my belly and then my arms as I was warming up they would feel like a hundred pound bricks um all of that if instead if I shifted that and turned it and said okay I'm going into battle this is a call to action I'm going to do something because you're probably not how many people actually pin the number to their chest and then walk off the course tear it up and walk away they all they all Gun goes off, they go across the starting line. Um, so it's a call. I, one way to look at it is just, it's a call. It's calling you, saying, be your best self today. Go do it right now at this moment. Um, and yes, you have to practice it. If you choose, this is one of the challenges that we have as marathoners. I coach so many marathoners. There are so few opportunities to practice this kind of, you know, this dichotomy that goes on in the head in the, in, the, in the heart about what's going on racing I don't know I'm, I'm, I'm brought to mind he didn't mean it in this context but I always think of Albert Iverson saying practice <laughs> they don't practice it was about practice which he meant in a different context but I feel like saying that to athletes a lot of times it's like you have to practice you need to get out into these situations I had some athletes this year who ran a 5k 10k phase and I remember many of them coming out of it Dominic Ricci is in, in particular example he said the value of getting on a starting line, getting nervous, succeeding, failing, coming back at it again and getting another chance in two more weeks based on my training to see what I did differently and how to change it. So, folks, <coughs> look at fear as a call to action. And that call to action means get on a starting line. Getting on a starting line means you don't have to run a marathon every time. Run some 5Ks, run some 10Ks, set some goals. Not only, you don't even have to train for those things. You just need to put yourself into those experiences where fear will raise its head. 
and then you've got a chance to go after it. And when you're scared or nervous or anxious, I always tell my runners, that's a sign that your goal is big enough, right? So for me, I use it as a reminder that I'm doing something worthy. Yeah. That my goal is worthy. Because if you don't have that, if you're not scared a little bit, if your sphincter doesn't pucker, as you like to say, Mm -hmm. then what are you doing? You're probably not being aggressive enough with your goal. With my athletes, I will get an athlete, and and if I'm coaching 100 athletes, two in 100 will tell me their starting line experience was, I've got this, calm, cool, and collected. That's two out of 100. You know, I'm not just using that as a, just as a, as a sort of informal survey, but and those two will kill it. I mean, those two, when you get in that, you've had that, if you've right. had those races, you know it, where you just know you're ready and so you don't, aren't nervous. But guess what? That means that 98% of the time, you're going to be shitting down the side of your leg and you've got to figure out how you're still going to go across that starting line. You're still going to deal with it. And, you know, looking at it as a call to action, recognizing that you have a chance to be courageous and to get and to stretch yourself out there. These are, these are some tools that you can use. You know, another thing that's really can be really helpful is sort of reframing it as a, this fear as a challenge, um, which for many people is, it's a super easy way. It sort of reverts back to being a little kid and somebody says, oh, you can't do it. You go, oh, yes, I can. Um, come up with a couple of different ways to challenge yourself when you get to that space of saying, okay, well, maybe my, and maybe my goal is so big, you can have some other challenges within the context of the race or the context of the event to get yourself there. But again, that's what practice is for. That's what these extra races are for is to give yourself that opportunity to dress rehearse it. Because when we run one race a year or two races a year and the value and the, and the, in, and the you know, sort of the money, the investment you've made, all the time and energy and money that you've invested into that event can be completely debilitating, which makes this fear a bigger boogeyman and a much larger one than it needs to be doing some smaller races, doing some other circumstances that, that, that will help. You know, you can also do some practice and training. You know, two years ago or a year ago, Chris, we did Team Rogue. We did these 10-mile bomb runs that I did on purpose because I knew all summer long my athletes were never going to get a chance to race. So I said, they're like, well, what's the workout today? I said, run 10 miles as fast as you fucking can. <laughs> and guess what? The course is really hilly. And they're like, well, no, what's the plan? Like, how fast <laughs> should I go? There is no plan. What's your plan on the race start? Like, get out there and race. And they're like, ah! They freak out. But part of that was to get them into that space, into that mentality of being, oh, like I can overcome this. I can do this because I, I, and it, because otherwise it's just, it can be really incapacitating on the starting line. Well, and I know, you know, we do the 30 miler leading up to spring marathons every year, or at least have the last three years, because it's one of those things. That it's an unknown for people. A lot of Absolutely. people haven't run 30 miles, but when they go out and do it, and prove to themselves they can, and many times fairly comfortably on those days, with no nutrition, by the way, mm-hmm. you do that, then it's dealing with an unknown, and it's just like practicing it with that sphincter puckering on the, the starting line. You mentioned reframing. I remember having this conversation with one of my runners, and speaking of different fears, she said, I'm scared of letting others down. Mm-hmm. Which I think is another fear, fear of letting people down, especially in the age of social media, as you say, and I... I asked her back, I answered, instead of, you know, giving a speech, I answered, or I answered back with a question. I said, what if you inspire them? And so to me, that's like the ultimate reframing on that fear mm-hmm. is, yeah, you could think of it as what if I let people down, but what if instead you put up a badass result and then they go put up a badass result because they saw that you did it. 
and especially in row groups, I think that's so valuable because a lot of people show up at the start line and they're thinking, gosh, I've got all these people watching at home on tracking screens. I've got friends on the course. What if I don't do what I said I was going to do? Or what if I don't do what they expect me to do? But more often than that has happened, I've seen people have big results. And then as a result, somebody think in their head, I can do it too, if so-and-so can do it. And then they go have a big result and kind of results in this domino effect across the group where everybody kind of crushes it. I mean, I know you've seen it. Oh, I saw it. You know, we just talked about Scott McPherson. Before the Olympic trials in 2012, he, he, you know, he stated to me afterwards that he felt like the pressure that he felt from his community of Rogue Beyond the, the, own protect, the pressure he had on himself as a person, as an athlete, and all, this is the culmination of all that he'd done. Plus, he had a huge community around him. He felt a lot of pressure. I remember him talking to me going into L.A. last year, and he was like, I do feel that as a pressure, but now it's a challenge instead of an insurmountable barrier. Now it's a, a, a bunch of other warriors behind me fighting for me rather than being that I have to hold them all up. And, you know, that's just a four years of practice. <laughs> right. So. so I do think, and this to me is a little bit strange, but I do think there is something to be said too about facing down fears in other parts of your life. Obviously there's fears on starting lines and fear of failure, fear of success that we've talked about here that relate directly to racing. But I think if you have a fear of heights, you have a fear of flying, you have a fear of in my case, small spaces, I'm claustrophobic. Facing down those fears or giving yourself opportunities to face them down will translate to facing down fear in other situations. So I think that's another example of pick a fear that may not be running related and go, just go do it. I have a really good friend and athlete who was just in Colorado with me. I won't name him because he would not want to be named. And he we decided we were going to go climb a 14er, which is a 14,000 foot peak in Colorado. And we chose one and we started climbing up it. And, um, you know, Ruth, my business life and world, everything partner also has a deep, deep fear of heights. And yet she continues to climb 14ers on a consistent basis because that's a way for her to challenge herself. And our friend, he got 13,100 feet up. He literally had thousand feet to go and we had to turn around and head back down. Well, that that friend has not stopped thinking about that to the point of being in a position of saying he's looking forward to the next opportunity to head out to the mountain so that he can get over that. And I'm certain as his, I am his coach as well, I am a hundred percent certain that that will allow me to be a better coach for him. It would allow him to be a better athlete because as you said, he chose some fear that was outside the construct of what running is. But yet once he gets over a fear that is way more primal, way more, irrational, as you may say. I mean, we were up there at that height and I said, is this fear rational or irrational? I, said, I don't give two fucks what it is. I cannot tell you what it is, but I literally am going to lose my shit if I don't get off this mountain as soon as possible. So it's like, oh, he's like, you can theorize all you want to. Let's just get down the hill. Right. So, but he's already got plans. He's going to get out there. He's going to get after it. And what a great value for his future running and for anything in his life to say, yeah, I found something that I know. And as he descended, it was really interesting. As he descended, he came much clearer about what was irrational about his fear. It doesn't change it. Anybody who has a fear of heights knows you, could, you can articulate an irrational, you can go through a philosophical argument about what's rational or irrational, but it is, it is right there. It is not something you can do anything about. And 
And yet, as he descended, he began to realize, oh, the biggest fear he had was the fact that he had to come off of the mountain. And once he did that, he's like, oh, I think I can make the other distance. But ultimately, he would not know those things about himself unless he took on these big epic challenges that, that forced him to do that. I'm not saying let's lock Chris. Maybe we should lock Chris in a closet. <laughs> it worked so well for this one person. Maybe I should take a lock you in a closet and lock the door and see how long it lasts and see how that does for your training. It's not a bad idea, actually. <laughs> it would need to be a small closet. It would be really small. And it's actually, for me, it's less the small space as it is being in a space where I can't get out. Yeah, you can or feel I it. have no control over getting out. Yeah. That's when I start having yeah. those irrational <laughs> responses. <laughs> I think it all relates. Back to when I was a kid and my brother had this trundle bed. And so oftentimes when it was raised, we would go under and play under the trundle bed stuff. And at one point I was under the kind of standard side of it, the the permanent bed side. He dropped the trundle and started pushing the trundle in oh, on goodness. me. So I was stuck under the bed oh, as I've the been trundle there. was closing. I've been in, there, brother. <laughs> and I was freaking out. And I think that has translated to other experiences. But anyway, that's enough about me. So yes, I... <laughs> Maybe that'll be a podcast episode. I'll just be in the closet. And, and <laughs> we'll, we'll need to Facebook Live that there. one to make it work. <laughs> right. So I want to go from fears to our next one. Um, well, not the next one we have on the list. Actually, the third on our list. But because I think it's related, which is stress management and arousal control. Because I think a lot of facing fears, of course, there's other related things happening with when you're managing stress and arousal. But I think the things we're going to talk about related to stress management and arousal control will also relate back to some tips you could apply in a fear-based situation. But a lot of what having a good race is, is being able to manage fears, as we've talked about, manage anxiety, manage nerves, and manage the stress as it relates to getting on a starting line. So let's talk about that. First of all, I think it's important to recognize that Again, if your goal is big enough, you're going to be freaking out a little bit as you approach race day. As, a, as we talk about marathon training and tapering, you know, there's taper madness, which is one of those things that just happens in those final couple of weeks as you're tapering. You, you start to question everything you've ever done and get nervous because you're not training as much and spending as much time there. So you kind of reinvest that energy into going crazy. And I've done 15 marathons now. And I'm pretty much a veteran of this stuff and a coach of it and talk to people about it all the time. And yet I've never had a situation where I wasn't going a little bit wacko and at least the final week. So this is an important thing to talk about. First of all, just as a coach, what do you see in stress and kind of arousal in your athletes as they get ready for a race? I mean, it runs the gamut. I mean, it, it, it runs the gamut from... Um, short little from like literally physiological ticks that people will have where they'll move their hands too fast. And it's really, really plays out on the Friday and Saturday before a race. Like when we go to Boston, I see it so often. I'll go to dinner with my athletes and somebody will be tapping. They never tap, but they've got their hand on a fork and they're tapping, they're tapping, they're tapping, they're tapping, they're tapping. It's totally subconscious. They don't yeah. know they're doing it. They don't have any idea. Or you'll see someone have a really big flip in sort of their their behavior so they'll uh, the talkative will become will not talk anymore the those who don't talk and are rather shy will become really talkative and start to over talking and then i'm like okay here we go we know what's going on 
probably the worst. And I, and I use this example all the time because two athletes that I had do it. Um, it's choosing really poor cross training slash other activities like gardening, like <laughs> what, 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 and it is, you know, I get it, but going into Boston every year in Austin, we've come out of March, the spring is up, but they didn't do the original gardening things that they needed to do in February and March. They would have all of a sudden they decide to dig a giant hedgerow right. like a week before the Boston marathon. Right. Like, my hamstrings are killing me. My back is so sore. I've got blisters on my hands. Like, what did you do? I mean, I, I had like two or three athletes do it. But the but like what were you thinking like that appropriate that what behavior was appropriate another one is food choices the night before I had somebody eating dried epic quantities of dried fruit the night before a race like this is not a normal behavior have you ever eaten dried fruit dried there's like freeze dried apples like why are you eating that much freeze dried apples and apricots like what do you think's gonna happen there? number one your belly's gonna get exploded to like bloated to twice its normal size your bowel movements are going to be Epic. Let me tell you, none. There will be no smooth. There there will be no smooth and easy experience of that. So you know, it's like just these irrational stress eating. It's stress eating, stress doing, stressing everything. It's like it. It it is. So yes, you see it consistently. You see it all the time, and it happens. It doesn't stop happening either, all the way to the gun going off. But what is so interesting is. I only, only in my most mentally fragile athlete have I had people have those kinds of stresses once the gun goes off. With almost all of my athletes, I've only made this mistake once or twice where I said, don't worry, when the gun goes off, it'll all be better. And, you know, just saying that to some athletes really does make a difference because they see that irrational behavior and they watch it and they're like, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. When the gun goes off, it'll go away. And then that sort of shifts it to anticipation. Because people hate that feeling rather than dread of the gun. They're like anticipating the gun and that shifts it a little bit. But I have had a few athletes that in, after the gun went off, they, they <laughs> lost it. it got people worse. So I have to be really I careful think, about I using think that of a few there. But yeah, so we won't name names. <laughs> but naming a name, I want to mention, you know, this can also happen before a workout or before a long run. I know Kate Barrett shared on Instagram mm-hmm. a couple of weeks ago before the Saturday long run on Friday, she was getting nervous and anxious because she's been dealing with some injuries and she's healthy at this time, but she's starting to build that long red distance to 14, 16 miles. But she starts to get nervous because she doesn't want to break. And she's mm-hmm. worried that if she goes too far or too hard that she might break. So she was just being very transparent on Instagram and sharing that, hey, I'm, I'm nervous before my Saturday long run. I'm just running easy, but I'm kind of freaking out over here. So I texted back a wine emoji <laughs> because, you know... <laughs> To me, that is one strategy is just put back a glass of wine. <laughs> and honestly, that's one I used on the day before. I'll drink a single glass of white wine mm-hmm. just to calm the nerves and to help me sleep a little bit. And it doesn't affect me on race morning with plenty of hydration, of course. So anyway, but let's talk strategies for managing stress, managing arousal, whether it's before race or workout. I tend to bucket these for my athletes into associative strategy, strategies where you're sort of associating with the race or kind of drilling into it. And then dissociative strategies where you're trying to disconnect and maybe not think about it. The strategies kind of fall in those two categories. And I think depending on who you are, you might need a combination of each. Of course, different personalities need different things. A lot of athletes I coach are just like, I don't want to think about any of it. And they want to dissociate completely. But I think a healthy balance of associative strategies and dissociative strategies is important. 
The first and most important, which I rely on a lot as an analytical mind, is control what you can control and really plan the details. When you start to get anxious, focus on what you can do to get ready. So talk about that more. Well, we all have rituals. We all have habits. And um, in some future podcasts, because I'm pretty sure we won't get to it today, we'll discuss the dangers of rituals. But for now, let's just talk about the importance of them. You just want to make sure, and this goes back to our last discussion about practice, 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 get your rituals right. Know the things that work for you and the things that don't work for you. I know there's some athletes that I have where they will make sure that at somewhere, but they will eat a meal at the same time. They go to a movie at the same time. They do certain things, but they've got this ritual that they know that they're going to inter- that they're going to en- enact that starts maybe at sa- on Saturday morning. Maybe it starts on Friday or whenever they get on an airplane to head out to the race that they're going to or whatever the case may be. They've got a series of steps that they know they're going to go through that don't change. They put out their uniform, they pin the bib on the number, they go through their little, their checklist. There's a wide variety of ways of rituals that work. The most important rituals are the ones that work for you. And it most, and my suggestion for anyone trying to determine what rituals they should choose and which ones they should jettison, the first place is find something authentic to you. If you're not a movie watcher, don't go to the movies. You know, if you're not a list maker, naturally, then make a list a week to two weeks before so that you've got something there. Like know yourself, know what you're authentic, who you are as a human being, and don't enact rituals that are inauthentic or not real to who you are. Because you're, when you're nervous, you'll blow right through those, man. You're going to see straight through them like x-ray vision, and you're going to be, this is all bullshit. And now you're in an existential dread situation, which you absolutely don't want to be in. So you know, do a little work beforehand to figure out the rituals that work for you and the ones that don't work. And just keep enacting those ones that do. And um, the second thing is to talk to a coach or other athletes in your training group about what rituals work for them. Because so many people have really out-of-the-box, cool and interesting rituals that are, that are not your normal thing. Like pin my number on, the, on my jersey or take a picture on Instagram of my thing. There, some people have some really cool ones. And Listening to their stories allows you to figure out what really works for you and realize that many of these rituals don't necessarily have to make sense. They only have to make sense to you. But they, I ha- cannot stress enough the importance of them making sense to you because it, it, if it's not a real thing, it, it is, as one of my favorite uh, magicians slash podcasters says, if it's real, it can take the pressure. Because the, what's going to happen coming right into that race is going to take serious pressure. It doesn't matter what it is. It just has to be really real because it's going to have to hold up against pressure. So be sure that you've tested these things and get those rituals set. That, that to me may be probably the most important thing that a person can do is prep in advance those steps that they're going to try to walk through. Uh, as I said, we'll talk to you again in another podcast on how to take those rituals and make sure you're enough of a problem solver to get through if they don't work out the way you want. But I, you know, these things go into meals, they go into sleep, they go into that. You can, you can, a person like Chris will probably dial into these with many, many subtexts to me. I'll be like, all right, did I wipe my ass? Do I got some nutrition? And did I get my, did my, my, my salt tabs? Because that's pretty much all that's going to help me out there. But, but everyone will have a different way of doing it. I've I've got three. I could, 
point two that I do consistently. One is that glass of wine, single glass of wine the night before a race. White, because red will sometimes give me headaches mm-hmm. with the sulfites. So that's one. I always do a extended race visualization the day before to kind of play the race out in my head so that I know how I'm going to feel and experience things before I do. And then the third thing I like to do is find a game to watch. You know, it's kind of a dissociative strategy, but remember before my marathon PR, I watched Texas Big 12 Conference Championships. We lost to Baylor that year in, in one of Mac Brown's, I think it's second to last year. But anyway, but that for me is finding a game that will take three hours of my time where I don't have to think about anything and will allow the time to fly by. You know, I'm not going to a movie, but I will find a good game to watch. That's a third one that I will, that I will enact. Another phenomenal one, one that I used when I was in college a lot, because um, we, and when I was in college, the collegiate athlete has a little tougher. Their race doesn't go off at 7 a.m. <laughs> right. Their race goes off at 7 p.m. Or in some cases, I mean, when I was coaching post-collegiate athletes, I mean, we would be on the West Coast with a race starting. I think Ali Mendez ran more than one time with a race starting at 11.30 p.m. Pacific Central t- Pacific Standard Time. <laughs> I mean, that's like one. That's like one thirty in the morning here. Right. And I remember the stress. I would so I would getting a good novel. Find a novel that's that's a sh- police procedural, a science fiction, a fantasy novel, something that's just easy to blow through that gives you time to get into a world, but also relatively easy to extract yourself from it. Um, one caveat about the idea of movies is. Be sure you pick your genre appropriately. Right. And, uh, you know, don't, you know, a romantic comedy, awesome. You know, a shoot 'em up, bang, bang, awesome. You know, Schindler's List, <laughs> you know, the night before a race. I, you know, you want to avoid as much existential dread as you possibly can. Right, so right. questioning the real purpose of life. Other than you're already doing that with the race itself, so choose your choose your 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 viewings appropriately. I would even say there's a danger in picking a big game like the one you did. Of course, you didn't go to Texas or Baylor, but I'm sure you had a dog in that fight. I certainly know you have a big dog in that fight now, given well, where your per- current yeah. viewpoints are. But we'll leave that one alone. <laughs> but you know, you want to go to Texas grad school. Yeah, it is. You want to pick yeah. a school. You do want to pick some of those games that aren't because people will read the tea leaves. Uh, overly like yeah. you know people will read into a a, a a game result and say well then it's meant that i'm meant to fail because i did it and you won't be rational so even though you think you'll won't do that you probably will okay so that's more associative related strategies you know the other thing i'll do is with my visualization is look at a course map review that make sure i've kind of got all of that memorized but let's talk about dissociative strategies one of those is just getting in a meditative mode where you're really focusing on your breathing, something you might do in a yoga class that often we don't associate with running, but can be super powerful to take your mind off of your stress and anxiety. How have you seen that work for athletes? <clears throat> it, it has to be practiced beforehand. It's not a useful technique that you just whip out the night before a race if you've never done it before. Um, Different athletes have different way. Every athlete has a different way to deal with meditation. If people are dispositionally inclined to that modality, that that sort of that sort of idea, um, I usually suggest a short three to five minute t- 
time frame in which they basically just work on their breathing. They don't, you don't try to go into some of the deeper aspects of what meditation is. It's more along the lines of getting breath right, following your breath. It's pretty amazing how rooting and grounding breathing is and just following your breath, recognizing your breathing as um, your body doing what it's normally naturally supposed to do, which is exactly what happens when the gun goes off in the race. Your body starts to do what it's normally naturally doing. I usually suggest, um, you know, just using a really simple meditation method. I think I mentioned this on another podcast, but I've become a pretty big fan of uh, an app called Headspace. I would highly recommend that people consider downloading. It's a free app. There are other pay aspects to it, but it has a 10-minute, 10-day meditation, free meditation process where a guy walks you through the basic meditation process. If you're at all interested in, the med- in meditation at all, I cannot suggest more Headspace as an app as a really simple way to get yourself into it. And it's something someone could do even a week before the race because someone's walking you through it, telling you what to do and how to do it. And um, even if you're a complete beginner at the meditation process, it's so soothing, calming. He's got a bit of an English accent, so it's relaxing. I, I, I cannot recommend enough to, some, to people to utilize that method. Um, and, and that is a potential option for them. I mean, if, if meditation is not your game, you, you, breathing should work just fine, just following your breath. Yeah, I will say meditation's not my game. Mm-hmm. I'm not very good at it. I've tried. I've been in meditation classes. I've gone to a sound meditation thing. Just not very good at it. My mind tends to race on other things, and I I can't. Maybe I just haven't practiced it enough. But one thing I do do, and this oftentimes happens in other situations than running. But as I reflect on it now, sometimes before I might speak in front of a big group, I could feel my heart rate kind of elevating, and and for me, I want to get calm and kind of be present as it relates to what I'm about to say to a big group. And so as I feel my heart rate kind of going up, what I will do is go into a breathing exercise where I put my fingers on my pulse and try to consciously bring my heart rate down by just doing really deep, consistent breathing. And it gives me something to focus on, like a task. You know, mm-hmm. It's like goal is lower heart rate, basically. Yep. And I'll just sit there and take a few minutes to breathe and just kind of really consciously try to have my heart rate come back down to normal levels. And that's a tool for me. I guess you could consider meditation, but for me, it's more of a practical breathing exercise, but it really helps me kind of calm down when I'm getting too anxious or stressed or I'm going into a situation. Sometimes it might be like, I hate going to the dentist. So mm-hmm. sometimes just before I walk in to get my teeth clean, I'm doing that. So I'm not like freaking out in the dentist chair. Uh, so that's, an example for those that may be a little bit scared of meditation yeah, itself. Yeah, I, I, I think that's really good advice. Another thing, um, another aspect to this word is, it, it, it's such a, it's appropriate, but it's just cheesy to me. I don't know why I've always felt this way. The idea of mindfulness has always just struck me in a really, like, weird way. But recently I've, began to realize mindfulness is just being aware of your circumstance. So if it's hot, feel the heat. 
if it's cold, feel the cold. If a bird is chirping, listen to the bird. If it's a, you know, a giant earth moving, shattering, pounding jackhammer next to your office, uh, reverberating the entire building. What's going on? Listen to it. It becomes suddenly the thing that is so irritating, problematic, or issue can suddenly kind of start to become manageable because you're paying attention to the thing. And so, choosing some things that are not that are external from yourself, disassociating, saying this is not me. This is a bird tweeting or a or a a a wind the wind blowing. A mind, mindfulness. Once I ch- change the word from this sort of uh, gobbledygook psych speak into what actually happens on a day-to-day basis um, and being paying attention to what's going on will pretty quickly move you out of whatever sort of monkey mind pinging brain space you're in because real is real and it's happening outside of you. So those of you who are already into a mindfulness game, which I'm sure some of our listeners are because it is the tour de jour of everyone's current psych speak um it use that and those of you who are like me and kind of think of it as a bunch of hogwash it really is just listening to the things going on around you for a moment i mean, I, I was when i i did i did some reading recently on this idea of mindfulness and i would it reminded me of experience i've had many many times where i get sometimes pretty stressed out on an airplane i don't know why I, sometimes i'm just in the mode where i don't want to listen to any music i can't read I'm just irritated to get on the freaking plane altogether. It doesn't matter where my seat is. I just sometimes find myself in that space. And I found myself so distraught on a number of occasions. This happened to me like eight to 10 years in that this has been going on. I just listen, sit there and listen to what's going on around me in the space. And I'll just hear the baby crying. And instead of saying, oh my God, there's a baby crying. I'm like, there's a baby crying. Babies cry. Wow. Crying baby. And, and all of a sudden, the baby, and then I start getting empathetic for the, for the parent and to the other people around rather than thinking about it in the way it's encroaching upon my space. It's like it's just there. Or listening to the, the guy next to me, you know, one time I had a guy clipping his fingernails next to me on a plane. Like that is nearly <laughs> the worst and grossest thing that a human being to do. And I remember just saying, I started listening to the whirling of the engine that's right outside the plane. And I was able to, anyway. I had never thought about it that way, and I'm sort of going off on a bit of a tangent, but mindfulness is a really real thing that I have discounted for a long time. It could be extremely useful in stressful circumstances like race scenarios, because it's just asking you to be you and to pay attention to the things that are going on around you instead of paying attention to the sort of relatively inaccurate and irrational fear slash nervous space that you're in prior to a race. I think at that point can also be particularly powerful in the context of whatever venue or course you that, may be on. You know, I think back to the, the famous, you know, Hoosiers example yeah. from from that movie where they're in the state championship game and the coach go gets them all out on the court beforehand because it's a bigger court than they've ever been on with more seats, more people in it. He measures the free throw line. He measures the height of the hoop. Just like, look, this is just like anything you've played on. It's no different. And sometimes for me, I'll use that in a race situation. If it's out of town, that may be more challenging. But 
for Austin. You know, if you're racing Austin, you can get out on the course. You can demystify things and be present while you're doing that. Experience it. Kind of get comfortable there. Before speaking engagements, I'll walk out into the empty space before the seats are filled and just get comfortable standing there and being present and observing the little details of whatever the space may be just to kind of get comfortable with it. So agree with that point. And I think if you could do it in the context of your venue or your course, then that can also be even more powerful. Another another thing I've used, this worked really well when I coach at the collegiate level. It hasn't worked so well for my adult athletes, but I think that has a lot more to do with the people or my ability to translate it or the amount of time I get to spend with the athletes. But I remember talking to the girls at UT frequently when they would get really nervous. Some of them would come to me and talk to me right before the race. And I would remind them that the race was on a Saturday. On a Sunday morning, they would wake up and what would they do? They'd roll out of bed, go to the bathroom. They'd put on their running shorts. They'd put on their running shoes. What would they go do? They'd go for a run. What would they do on Monday? They would put on their running shoes. They would go for a run. What would they do on Tuesday? They'd be ready to go do a workout because we always did our workouts on Tuesdays. And when I would explain it to them that way, they realized that in essence, this is part of a process. It's part of the thing that they do and the thing that they say they want to do. And if they're clear on their purpose, then going through and making them realize that this is not the end all be all. It's just another step in the long-term process that they're going through would frequently make them say, oh yeah, you're right. Like this is not a real thing I'm feeling because it's real because I need to be up and aroused and excited about what I'm doing, but I don't need to be incapacitated by it. And that incapacitation comes frequently from it's not proper. It's not in its right place in the context of everything that's going on. So there you go. We're an hour and a half into this, so we've got to stop at two out of the four, but hey, we tried. We got there, talked fears, we talked about managing stress and arousal. I think the biggest thing as you're listening to this, because you may be thinking, God, what do I do with this? These guys are all over the place, is to pick one or two things that jumped out of you as thoughts or ideas that you can deploy in your own training before a tough workout or before a race that you might be coming up, might have coming up, and use it, try it. But file this podcast away and maybe listen to it again two months from now after you've tried a few things and then pick up another couple of things to try and test out. We're not trying to necessarily say do all of these things, but find what resonates with you. Give it a shot. See if you notice a difference in how you face fears, how you manage stress by employing some of these strategies. I couldn't agree more. It's not, it's not any one thing. It's finding the thing for you at the moment. And as you, as you go through your running career, you will find that once you overcome a stressor or get over a particular fear, um, a new one will jump into its place, which will need a different strategy. So continuing to re-reference these things, as Chris said, we're, this, is not, this is not a catalog or a step-by-step process. It's way more of a, of a smattering of, of, of what can happen and what might happen, and then using our experiences as coaches and athletes to try to help you work through those. And um, also it's a great sounding point for you to talk to the people that you run with and ask them about their experiences and what they do. I think frequently that's not spoken about enough in the groups of people that run together. They end up talking about things that are not as, as impactful to what be going on and finding the strategies of the people that you run with that what's worked for them, what hasn't worked for them. 
because Chris and I have just showed, just shared some humorous stories and some, you know, rather non-humorous stories about experiences that we've had. But I guarantee you ours are just the experiences of two dudes in Austin, Texas. Many, everybody's had different experiences and sharing and listening to those will make it become much more of a human part, a part of a process thing for all of you. And hopefully you walk away getting on starting lines, as we've always said, having a better starting line experience. Cause that's really our goal, right, Chris? Absolutely. And if you have strategies that you've used to face your fears or manage your stress that you find effective, share them with us. Send me an email, Chris at Rogue Running. We'd love to talk about it and share with our other listeners. But thank you again for listening as we continue our mental training series. You are listening to the Running Rogue Podcast. As always, you can check us out at roguerunning.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Rogue Running. We'll continue talking about these other tools another time. But thank you all for listening. We'll talk to you next time.